good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll sit down with the executive director of the Gene Siskel Film Center, Gene D. St. Aubin, the longtime arts leader, stepping down next month after 20 years at the helm of the acclaimed cinema organization. Theater critic Carrie Reed will stop by to talk about a new production of the musical Tick, Tick, Boom. Later in the show, I'll catch up with the curator of the 20th annual Cut to the Chase one-act play festival, which starts later this week. And I'll check in with Julie Tiao Ma, the president of the Chinese Fine Arts Society, to learn more about some of the Lunar New Year programming taking place over the next couple of weeks. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. Last year, the Gene Siskel Film Center celebrated its 50th anniversary. Established in 1972 as the Film Center of the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, the Cinema House has served as a safe space for alternative film programming. Of course, a lot has changed in the film exhibitor landscape over the past five decades. For the past 20 years, Gene D. St. Aubin has led the Siskel Center through an incredible period of change. Just think of how we watched new movies in 2003. Even though it might not seem that long ago, things were a lot different in the early 2000s. Netflix was still a DVD subscription service. The term streaming platform wasn't in our vocabulary, and you couldn't rent movies that were still playing at your local cineplex. Through it all, the Siskel Center has not only survived, it's thrived as a beacon of light for local cinephiles. Dee St. Aubin recently announced she's stepping down from her role as executive director. Her last official day is February 15th, the Film Center is presenting a Toast to Gene event on Sunday, January 29th that will include a screening of Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. I recently caught up with D. St. Aubin inside one of the Film Center's two theater spaces for a conversation about her 20 years as executive director and her decision to step down. I would imagine that as someone who's the executive director of the Gene Siskel Film Center, you have to have a, a deep love of cinema. Is that something you grew up with, or did that develop as you got older? Yeah, I've always loved movies, um, but I've always loved the arts in general. You know, throughout high school and even college, I always took painting classes and art classes, and I had a lot of friends in theater, But and then I ended up working in film as an art director for many years. And then, then I went and did arts administration, uh, worked at the Chicago Park District, developing cultural centers all over the city and working with all kinds of artists, dance, theater, performance artists, visual artists, and then, um, and then came here. So it was sort of like coming back to film. So what drew you to the Siskel Center in 2003 when you took over as executive director? Um, you know, I had been at the Chicago Park District as the cultural arts manager for the city for a, a while. And I, I felt like I had done everything I could do there and I was looking for new challenges. And this position opened up and I thought, you know, it'd be great to be connected to such a, a, an amazing institution like the School of the Art Institute and the museum and the Art Institute of Chicago. 
And uh, and I was a fan of the Film Center. You know, I came to films here all the time. So it just kind of everything sort of clicked. Yeah. The timing was right. <laughs> what do you remember about that first year here in your current role? It was tough, actually. You know, it was, I'll be honest, it was kind of a leap for me to go to the position where I was to being an executive director. So it was a learning curve. I had a lot of support and a lot of resources within the institution and outside of the institution. But audiences were dwindling. Um, we had kind of an elitist reputation. Uh, there was a disconnect because it was right after we had moved from being on Columbus Drive to being on State Street. And the same time that we made the move, we changed our name. So we had been for... 30 years, almost 30 years, the film center of the School of the Art Institute. And we were always housed either in the museum or in the school. And then we moved to State Street and we changed our name to the Gene Siskel Film Center in honor of the late great film critic. And so I think a lot of people didn't even realize we were the same place. You know, so there was a lot of public information and branding. And, you know, we even tried to use the word movie as much as film, because we didn't want people to think that, oh, I you know, I can't go there because I, I don't know anything about Goudard or, you know, I don't know what the French New Wave is. So, you know, we wanted everybody to feel comfortable here and we wanted everybody to realize there's a movie here for everybody. You know, it might not be every movie, but there's always going to be something within a month that is going to really take you someplace else, entertain you, move you challenge you. So, you know, we really tried hard to get people to understand that we were everybody's movie theater. Yeah. I was wondering about that. It would seem like changing the name to the Gene Siskel Film Center would make it more accessible to a wider audience. Was that the case? I, yeah. I don't know if they had, I think at the time that they changed the name, it was more about, you know, Gene's passing was very, he was very young. It was very quick he you know just he got sick and then he was gone and so I think it was really more about honoring his legacy and honoring what him and Roger Ebert had done for Chicago is putting middle America on the movie map there had never been nationally known critics who were from Chicago everything movies always opened you know in New York and LA but as Roger and Gene's reputation increased Movies started opening up in Chicago at the same time because filmmakers wanted those quotes. They wanted the quotes from Roger and Gene to put in all their ads and, and their posters and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we were no longer a flyover city, you know. And now, you know, we're kind of resorting back to being mm. a little bit of a flyover city. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the film exhibition landscape over the past 20 years? Oh, my God, there's been so many, you know, um, but film always seems to survive. Uh, you know, the most recent during the pandemic, everybody, myself included, added more streaming platforms. You know, before the pandemic, I had two platforms. Now I think I have five. <laughs> so a lot of people were doing, you know, we were stuck at home. And we wanted to be entertained and we needed to be transported out of our living rooms. And we want people to come back out. They have to justify purchasing all, you know, all those monthly fees and having all these platforms. So people are coming back slowly. It's been a little bit slower of a recovery than I expected. And then 
the studios themselves, you know, now Netflix and Amazon and who, you know, they're all big players, you know, up right up there with Warner Brothers and Sony. And sometimes there's no difference between the, the date it's available on a streaming platform could be the same date it's available in theaters. And it's really hard to compete with that. It's hard to compete with people's couches. Is it fair to say some of those trends were already starting before the pandemic? It seems like fewer people were going to the theater. Yeah, a little bit. I think there was some shifting. You know, some of our programs that had always been really popular, we were seeing, you know, every year attendance kind of decreasing and decreasing. And and then other things, attendance was increasing. So there was, I think, kind of a shift, and you just really had to pay attention to what the audience was responding to. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Jean D. St. Aubin, the executive director of the Jean Siskel Film Center. She's stepping down from her leadership role in a few weeks. I know a lot of people have their own connections to the the film center. Thought I'd uh, share mine. Uh, for me, I distinctly remember coming here to see a film titled "Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench." It's Damien Chazelle's first film. Chazelle, of course, for our listeners, is now a big Hollywood director behind movies like La La Land and Babylon. But this was back in 2010. I saw a trailer for this black and white indie film. I couldn't find it playing anywhere until I saw it was coming to the the Siskel Center. And I just remember being so excited that there was this option for me. And uh, I went and saw it, and I was comforted knowing I had access to a cinema that was playing interesting things. I know a lot of people listening probably have their own story like that. So really, if we think about the Film Center's history, the key asset has always been its commitment to programming, regardless of some of the external factors. It's the it's the curation that, that keeps people coming back. Totally. You know, I, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, our programming, you know, I don't know what else to say except that it's really good. <laughs> but, but it's also, I shouldn't, I mean, it's, it's very thoughtful. You know, we try to make sure that within every month or every couple weeks, we're showing either we're presenting a film festival or a retrospective along with new releases of more art house kind of films and documentaries and you know independent filmmakers locally and internationally so we really work really hard to have a balance to um, really try to appeal to a, a wide range of people without losing sight of our mission which you know we're not gonna have wakanda forever here we're not gonna have you know the latest big huge blockbuster because that's not really who we're about. I mean, we're about a really curated film program for everything from people who just like movies or have like a, you know, a favorite director or whatever to the true cinephile. You know, there are people who I see here three or four times a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just here. Mm-hmm. They don't even know what's playing sometimes. They just come mm-hmm. and then they decide which film they want to see. Right. <laughs> so I love those people. <laughs> well, even if you go to like the uh, 
your local multiplex i mean it feels so uh kind of like what radio has turned into it's like the same movies and maybe playing on multiple screens there's not a lot of diversity and when i was growing up there'd be like like every theater had a different movie maybe a one big one would be in two screens but i feel like if a marvel movie opens these days it takes up like four screens maybe now more than ever this is an alternative yeah and I, you know you're right i've noticed it i think they're actually putting out fewer films Movies have become so expensive to make that I think I think they're afraid to take risks. So they're afraid to make, you know, real character. This is the big studios, really character driven films, story driven films. You know, it seems like so much money is put into special effects and blowing things up and chases and fantastical characters where the people who come to the film center, they want a film that's going to be character and story driven. What are some of the the things that you'll think about most fondly over your your 20 years as far as like implementing here? I think we've done a a really good job, you know, being where we are on State Street in between Lake and Randolph. You know, downtown is not considered the north side or the west side or the south side. You know, we're really everybody's neighborhood and everybody feels comfortable coming downtown. So I think we've been really good at getting that message out so that we have a really diverse audience. Our advisory board has become way more diverse than it was when I started. Um, Our audience has become more diverse in all different ways, age, culture, you know, a lot of socioeconomic. And that's really been something I think part of that is just my life at the Chicago Park District and learning the whole city and seeing who the city really is. I wanted all those people to feel comfortable here. Mm -hmm. And I wanted everybody to think of the film center as their movie theater. So as we wind down our conversation, I guess the obvious question is why choose to step down now? I know it, you know, it was a really, it was a hard decision to make. Uh, but it's been 20 years, and I have a lot of interests and other things I'd like to do with my life. And and it's almost like when I was at the Park District, I had reached a point, okay, I've done everything I can do. I feel like I've made a mark, and now it's sort of time to move on. And I feel like it's time for me to pass the baton. You know, I think I've I've made an impact. I've definitely helped the film center. I'm leaving it in a good place. Right now, we have new artistic leadership. I always knew I wanted to stay here through our 50th anniversary, which is ending. So all year, we've been celebrating our 50th anniversary. And I wanted to stay through the transition of our director of programming. Our former director of programming retired in 2021, Mm. at the end of 2020. And we hired a new uh, director of programming who's fantastic. So I feel like I'm, I'm leaving the Film Center in good hands. What's next for you? <laughs> um, you know, I've been too busy doing this job to really do anything <laughs> about mm-hmm. what's next. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think you'll, you'll miss most about being here? I'll miss the audience. You know, I really love uh, the people that come here. We have a great audience. They're warm. They're interesting. When filmmakers come here, they always say your audience asks the best questions. You know, they don't ask the usual kind of, you know, how long did it take you to make? How much did it cost? You know, they really, they really kind of get it. Um, and so that's what I think that's what I'm going to miss the most. Gene, thanks so much for making time to talk. Good luck 
You're welcome. Thank you. This was <laughs> it was a pleasure. That was Jean de St. Aubin. She's the outgoing executive director of the Jean Siskel Film Center. The organization is presenting a toast to Jean on Sunday, January 29th at 6 p.m. The event will include a screening of Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator in 35mm and a video tribute to Jean. You can find more information at siskelfilmcenter.org. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the arts section every week here on WDCB, thank you. Make sure to check out the program's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. Visit theartsection.org. This is the life of Boba Bobo. This is the life of Boba Bobo. This is the life of Boba Bobo. Bohemia. And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me now remotely is theater critic Carrie Reed. Jonathan Abarbanel is still on assignment. He'll be back next week, hopefully. I feel like Jonathan Larson has come up quite a bit with us over the past couple of months. In November, you he has re- indeed. Yeah, in November you reviewed a local revival of Larson's ultra-popular Rent, and today we'll be talking about a new production of Larson's Tick, Tick, Boom, the musical that came out before Rent in the early 90s. This is being presented by Boho Theater. Fun fact, I read that Tick, Tick, Boom was... Once titled Boho Days. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of irony to that, isn't <laughs> or synchronicity at least. <laughs> right. Directed here by Bo Fraser. What did you think? You know, I really enjoyed this. Now, the the this musical did get quite a bit of attention a couple of years ago when there was a film version that I will confess I have not seen, but I believe Andrew Garfield uh, was nominated or did he win an Oscar? I do not recall. I think he was just nominated. Just nominated, but yeah, I mean that it did, uh, and I think it's still available on Netflix. So I should probably sit down and watch that one of these days. <laughs> you know, this is a show that in some ways. Um, lays the groundwork for the stories that we hear in Rent. There's, uh, it's set in 1990. It's autobiographical. The lead character is named John. We meet, and he's a 30-year-old musical theater composer slash waiter at a diner um, who's trying to get his big break. He is working on a musical that's going to have a workshop, a musical that's sort of a sci-fi rock musical called Superbia, which is, in fact, something that Larson was working on at the time that he decided to, you know, talk about his experiences in this show. For a long time, I think he was just doing it as sort of a solo piece. After his death, um, David Auburn, the playwright, came in and kind of gave it more of a book. It's still more of a song cycle, I would say. Um, But you definitely get a sense of who these characters are, that sort of, you know, late boomer, early Gen X, yearning, you know, stuck in the 90s, early 90s. You know, the uh, the AIDS is definitely present, as it will be uh, very present in Rent. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's just a, 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 you know, a great little coming of age musical. The twist in this production is Bo Frazier has cast, uh, the three role. Well, there's more the three actors playing multiple roles, except for John, um, with all trans and gender nonconforming performers, which I think, um, you know, adds to the sense of people who are feeling like they're outsiders in the world, 
you know, how do I fit in? How do I keep myself safe? In the case of John, he's mostly thinking about how do I how do I get some financial stability? If you've seen Rent and you're familiar with the calls that uh, Mark, the filmmaker, gets from his parents in White Plains, here, you know, John is getting calls from his loving parents, also in White Plains, who, who support him, who think he's very talented, but are also wondering why he's just not, you know, coming up in the world the way, you know, maybe his, his lawyer sister or the other, you know, more conventionally successful uh, people around him are doing. So it's really about, do I sell out? How do I define success? How do I define love? John has a girlfriend, Susan, who, Susie, who's a dancer. Susie really wants, you know, a, a, a calmer life. She's tired of New York. She would love to move to Cape Cod, maybe have a family. Um, so there's all these, all these questions that I think, even though I'm quite a bit removed from being 30, um, are certainly familiar to anybody who's hitting what I think John calls his pre-midlife crisis. <laughs> Can you distinguish a growth in his writing when you compare Tick, Tick, Boom to Rent? You know, I think a little bit. There's a definite sense of homage to Stephen Sondheim. Like, literally, uh, the John character is referencing Sondheim. Sondheim does, in fact, show up at the show within the show of Superbia, the workshop. Um, he, he references West Side Story. He references, There's a uh, song called Sunday, um, which is set at the diner and kind of mocking the brunch crowd. But uh, Larson very much said this was an homage to Sunday in the Park with George. Um, so, yeah, in a sense, it's not derivative necessarily. I wouldn't say that. I would say it's sort of self-conscious in a way, but I think that that's because it is autobiographical, right? And in a way, he's also sort of standing up and questioning his own self-absorption as a 30-year-old you know, man who is trying to make it in the world. And there's a scene, I, hope, I don't think it's giving too much away, but his best friend and roommate, Michael, who's moving out. Michael has left the world of acting to become a very successful marketing executive. You know, on the surface, it seems like he's got his life together. He's got the BMW. He's got the beautiful apartment, which, as uh, as John notes, has a bathtub that's actually in the bathroom and not just like, you know, in the corner of the kitchen someplace in the six, you know, six-story walk-up. But we find out that Mark does have other things going on related to the fact that he is a gay man in 1990. And when John finds out what's going on with Mark's health, it, it really does lead to this, I think, a really interesting breakthrough in the story. And I would think a little bit maybe. I mean, we can't ask him because the tragedy is, of course, that Larson himself died at 35 the night before the first preview for Rent. You know, whether that is something that really did happen, whether that's something that really did give him a sense that, you know, I'm more interesting when I'm talking about the bigger world and not just my life. I think that was the attempt that he made in rest, you know, to talk about greater class issues. Now, I have my own issues with somehow, sometimes with how that is addressed within rent, but I think you can look at Tick, Tick, Boom, you know, as a younger man's piece, a man who is still, you know, struggling to find his own way. And by the end, he's coming to an acknowledgement that, no, it's not to be, you know, cliche, but it does. It takes a village, maybe an East Village, maybe a West Village. We're not really sure, but it takes everyone around him to support him, and he has to give something back to them in return. You know, he has to be aware of their influences and not just be about, when do I succeed? When do I get my big hit? Who's going to love me? That sort of thing. What did you think about the cast? And in this particular production, the three actors, Alex Van plays uh, Jonathan, Crystal Claros plays Michael, and uh, along with some other roles, and then Luke Halpern as Susan, the girlfriend. They're all really terrific. Halpern also has a really funny turn as Rosa, um, Jonathan's agent, you know, and it's kind of the, 
whiskey voiced, you know, grand dame with the cigarette holder kind of cliche, but it's it's quite a funny performance as the, the agent who he hasn't seen in six months who all of a sudden shows up, you know, at his workshop out of the blue. So there are, you know, I think some very moving songs, real life days, you know, there's just, you know, if you've heard, if you've seen the movie, I think from what I understand, a lot of the songs come through very well in that too. Again, I have not seen it myself. Halpern does a terrific job. Uh, also as a character uh, named Caressa, who is in the workshop of Superbia, and there's a song called Come to Your Senses, which was actually a song in Superbia. So, you know, there's kind of these little, you know, wheels within wheels, uh, meta aspects to this musical. Um, and, you know, you can get the, also I think he's asking the question about what, how do you define success? Everyone agrees that the workshop goes really well. It shows a lot of talent. It was well cast. But then as his agent kind of has to bring him down to earth, said, look, John, you've written this musical that you know, a little, you know, a little quirky for Broadway, a little too big of a cast for off-Broadway. We knew this could happen. We knew that there would be people who say, yeah, this is great. We just don't know how to promote it, produce it, market it. There's also a very funny scene where he tries to fit in at Michael's, you know, at Michael's job. Michael brings him in to say, hey, maybe you could do, you know, you're creative. Mike, my firm likes creatives. Why don't you come in and do a naming session for a new product? And, yeah, that, that doesn't go terribly well. <laughs> and I think the product was actually Olio. Do we remember Olio? Wasn't that the fat substitute? It's a fat oh, substitute. Oh, yeah, for potato you know, chips. And they're yeah. all kind of, and if you've ever worked in a marketing firm, and I did work at one time at a firm that did naming, so there were some, you know, little painful moments of recognition in that scene. <laughs> I think what he comes up with, John's character comes up with it, is substitute, and that, of course, gets him, you know, dismissed from the, <laughs> from the focus group and indeed from the entire building. <laughs> you think you alluded to the universal themes, but you don't have to be a struggling playwright in New York, but anybody who's kind of pursued something that's taken Absolutely. work. Absolutely. You know, and, and I, yeah, yeah, I think we put a lot of emphasis on 30 for some reason. Now, I will say my own pre-midlife crisis probably hit around 25, and then after that, <laughs> I was more or less fine, as fine as I was going to be. But, you know, there is this sense that, you know, how many of Times do we see publications thirty under thirty? You know, we, we do worship youth, obviously. You know, in this culture, and there's the sense I think maybe more in the arts than elsewhere. But I think you know, even you know, in finance, in medicine, in anything, you know, you want to be the you know the, the the hot young thing, the new the new kid on the block, the one who's really going to show people the way. Julia Child was uh, forty nine when she took her first cooking class. So right, yeah, I, I think we just romanticize that and. Um, What's interesting, I think, in Tick, Tick, Boom is that you see them romanticizing it, but also aware of how they're romanticizing it. So it's a very self-aware piece, and I think in many ways a very smart piece as well. Um, and, and funny, you know, there is, there's this undercurrent of mournfulness. Um, AIDS is not as present as it certainly is in Rent, but, you know, at one point John talks about seeing the people in the village wearing the Silence Equals Death t-shirts, you know, um, there's also a funny line about, you know, Broadway in 1990. Every show is from London, and tickets are a jaw-dropping $50, which, <laughs> you know, <laughs> led to some hollow laughter in the house the night that I saw the play. And I want to make it clear, though, though the cast is very much gender nonconforming. The characters are still played as the, as they were written. So, you know, Susie is presented as, as a woman. John is a is is a man. Uh, Michael is a man. But um, I think the intent is to really show that maybe this is the you know the the next way to think about 
um, the pressures for people who are creative who, but don't necessarily fit in. And certainly, as, you know, I think I talked a little bit last week um, in talking about Theo's production of Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, that there was a you know mixed gender cast in that production. And it's not that they're changing any of the lyrics or changing any of the lines to reflect that, but just by their embodiment and their presence. To me, at least, it did make me think about, you know, the ongoing and ratcheting up, indeed, um, attacks on trans and gay rights and, uh, you know, just, just the ability to exist, to simply be, not to be an artist, just to simply be who you are in the world. Really strong house band uh, present on stage, uh, headed up by Harper Caruso. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a quick 90 minutes. And not really very much, you know, I, I didn't detect very much lag time. So I think it's, if, if you're a fan of Jonathan Larson and you only know the movie, or like me, you hadn't seen the movie, I think this is a really good production to take in. It doesn't come around all that often. I know Pegasus players way back in the day did a production of it, but in general it really hasn't. And I think there might have been a touring production because it did go to New York, or did have, I think, a Broadway production that kind of toured a few years ago, but... In general, it's definitely not nearly as well-known as Rent. And, you know, there, sadly, there aren't that many Jonathan Larson works there because, again, he, he died at 35. So, you know, the, the irony of that, when you watch Tick, Tick, Boom, just hits you with such force. You know, he here on, you know, on the eve of his great success, when he was so worried about, am I going to have this success by the time, you know, I'm 30 or 35, he had the success, but he never got to enjoy it. Um, he never got to enjoy the laurels from that. Right. So I'm not sure if this even matters, but had Rent not exploded, would Tick, Tick, Boom have just gotten lost and never been? I don't, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Because I think, honestly, it almost sounds like, from what I've read, he kind of did the show as a rock monologue, um, which was fairly new at that time in the early 90s. Um, eventually it did, you know, the, uh, a producer did see Tick, Tick, Boom, and that's what eventually led to him getting some, you know, some chances to work on on rent, and of course, we don't know how the book was for that because, as I said, after his death, David Auburn, who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, he wrote Proof, uh, did some reconfiguring and restructured it into a three-actor musical instead of just a solo piece. You know, we, the, the Jonathan that we meet, the John we meet in Tick, Tick, Boom. By the end, he's like, "No, man, I'm just going to keep doing this. You know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to keep slugging it out. You know, despite my doubts. You know, if Rent had not taken off, maybe, maybe Jonathan Larson might have been like, yeah, I don't know if he ever would have gone to work in marketing, but he might have been like, eh, maybe I'll write a, maybe I'll write a Disney song. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah. Right. Boho Theater's Tick, Tick, Boom continues at the Edge Theater through February 5th. Carrie, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. I'm Gary Zydek, and this is the art section. It's all thriller and no filler as the Artistic Home Studio presents its annual one-act play festival later this week. In fact, the festival is actually titled Cut to the Chase. Because why wait for the good stuff? This year's festival, which is the 20th edition, will feature six new 10-minute one-act plays. 
Cut to the Chase will be presented Thursday, January 26th through Sunday the 29th at the Den Theater. I recently caught up with Cut to the Chase Festival producer and lead curator Ted James at the Wicker Park neighborhood venue. We talked about the various ways one-act plays different from more traditional multi-act works. The structure is in one act, meaning all of the narrative form is it takes place in one act which is usually about 10 minutes we'll probably have one that will go as long as 15 minutes but it it makes it a very short concise beginning climax and end and resolution and so what it does is it it takes hopefully an entire arc of a typical character story you know the day that something big happens and it shrinks it down into this very small period of time of like 10 minutes and so what it means is that you get to see in this case, six full stories. They should be complete stories in the period of time you'd normally see basically one play. Sure. What is the key then to a, a good one-act play? you got to get right into the action. You don't have much time for background. That's exactly right. What I always say is today's the day. Yeah. So in, um, in a, in a one-act play, today is the day that thing happens, that person reacts, that person learns something, that person becomes braver, that person falls in love. Whatever it is that the story's telling, there aren't several days, it's today. And so that means that the action moves very quickly. And from an actor's perspective, since this, this is a, a presentation of the Artistic Home Acting Studio, um, that means they have to move very quickly through the emotional arc of what happens to those characters. There's no time to develop that. It just, boom, it happens. And so things move very, very quickly, essentially. And you tell a story extremely efficiently is mm -hmm. what happens. And I think, to me, writing is more editing than writing. <laughs> you know, it's bringing that, that really concise thing that means something much, much bigger. Right. And so that we see that moment in which someone changed. And the short form of it just shrinks that down to a smaller and smaller place. So it's just really a full story of someone's life edited down to the core essence of that day. So this is the 20th year of the festival uh, with three years off in between uh, for COVID. Do we know much about the origins of how this got started? Yes, this was, so the Artistic Home Acting Studio was founded by Kathy Scambiatera and John Mossman. And, and Kathy is still the artistic director of the company as well as of the main stage productions, the Artisticum Theater. And they got together and founded it as an acting studio. And the first year they, they wanted a showcase of their acting style and the students who they had taught in acting. And so they launched Cut to the Chase as that. So it really started as a showcase of the particular form of acting, which is a um, Meisner-based, Sandy Meisner-based acting style as taught at the Artistic Home Acting Studio. And over the years, it's gone on to um, bring a lot of actors who have graduated from the program, have gone on and become well-known actors in Chicago stages or on television. They still come back and, and act in this. And in fact, this year we have ones that have been actors, you know, they're actively working actors around Chicago and they come back as like a homecoming for this really fun festival where they know it's just gonna be this really hardcore focus on that moment-to-moment -moment acting, telling these stories through very quickly in this raw space, this very small space, where um, you just see that moment-to-moment um, -moment acting style as they teach it. And just out of curiosity, is there much time for pre-production work as far as the, the actors and director 
working in rehearsals? It's definitely compressed. Um, and so we do really focus on getting actors that can go fast. Um, so we, we have about, um, it, we had the holidays in there, which obviously makes things rough, but this was, um, it was cast in, in December, in mid-December, and then um, we're opening January 26th. So that's a very short program uh, of rehearsal. And so it, it's intense. It's very intense, and there's six plays, and each of the directors and their cast, they rehearse separately in separate locations or at separate times, um, so they, um, they can really focus on a very small period of time of these 10 minutes. So, um, so it's basically a compressed, extra intense rehearsal process. This year's festival, you're the producer and the, the curator, so what were you looking for when you were putting this together? Yeah, so when we started, I sat down with Kathy Scambiatera, the artistic director of the Artistic Home, and and talked about kind of where we are in the country right now and where audiences are right now. And we came up with the, um, the theme, the importance of connection. And this year, but all years, theater is really about connecting human beings, you know, having them in the same physical space, watching human beings react at these very important moments of their lives together in front of us raw as real people. And so we set that as the theme as we went out to look for scripts. And um, I read over 400 scripts, which oh, wow. was insane. It's, I say it's like I read several Gone with the Winds. <laughs> and uh, we narrowed it down to 15 and then the, um, a select group from the company, including Kathy and uh, Lauren Vallis, we all got together and, and limited it down to, eventually to six. And in addition to that general theme of the importance of connection, also I was looking for uh, scripts that really um, showcased that moment-to-moment -moment acting style is taught at the Artistic Home Studio, and what I think is a very Chicago style too, where people are living truthfully right in front of you. When one actor does something, the other is reacting to that actor, not to some idea they had about the script, but really to what's going on in front of them. And that's what we're really hoping to showcase with the fest. And then we were talking a, a little bit before we started recording, the pieces that are gonna make their uh, premieres uh, at this year's festival, will they go on then to turn into something else or what's kind of the lifespan for some of these? Yeah, I, I assume that they'll go on and play in other festivals in other cities. We have every one of them, uh, none of them have played in Chicago yet. We have two world premieres and then four Chicago premieres. And um, typically then they'll go on to other cities and play in those festivals as well. Every now and then, particularly um, in the film side of things where we have short films, but often in, in the play world as well, it is developed then sometimes further into a full-length production by itself where it's sort of like you, you extrapolate those characters and the stories into a full-length play. Mm -hmm. But uh, from, from talking to the playwrights, I think all of these are finished works as they are. And so they would probably go on to other cities and, and play in other festivals. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Ted James, the lead curator of this year's Cut to the Chase one-act play festival. Not only is James producing the fest, he's also directing one of the plays, a piece titled Intermission that's from acclaimed playwright Will Eno. Yeah, that one I'm actually directing, which just came about as, as Will and I were talking. It, is, it takes place in the intermission of a fictional play. And so at the opening, the actors are in an audience looking at the audience where the play had been taking place. So right from the beginning, our actual audience becomes our fictional audience. So the, act, the audience becomes quote-unquote actors as they watch a fictional audience respond to them. So it has, it continues to play on that in this extended metaphor of the actors in the intermission and the intermission in the, of, of the acting in life. And um, it's a really beautiful play about 
um, not missing the moments between the moments when the when your real happiness actually happens there's all this stuff that's going on that's the official stuff and then there's some moments between there that you really want to pay attention to it's a fascinating play once you you pick your final six then does the playwright get to pick its director and help with casting or are you involved in that so for that um, the um, Kathy Scambiotera who's the artistic director of the artistic home she um, picked the directors and then um, the plays were essentially collaboratively chosen with the directors based on um, the you know the interests and the expertise of the various directors of who would direct what um, and then the company um, puts out the casting notice because all of the actors must have been graduates of the acting program or be actively in it because it is such a specific style. Uh, and so that, uh, Kristen Collins, who's the casting director of the company, um, coordinates that. And, um, but then it's up to the directors to, um, to build their casts. And um, so some of them are actually still acting students. Many of them, they may have graduated from acting, you know, have an acting degree, but they're doing this specific training program. But many of them, most of them, I would say, certainly in my cast, um, they graduated a long time ago and they're working actors and they've come back to do this because it's that sort of return to that, that festival that maybe got it started for them yeah. in that style. And then how would you describe uh, the audience experience to someone thinking of going to this? Do they start and end back to back? Our plan, uh, it, this will run without intermission. So um, we don't have a final running time of it. We'll develop that over the coming few days. Um, but it'll probably be about an hour and a half with no intermission. And um, the way you program, you know, uh, several independent stories into one show is an art in itself. And so we're still working out the exact final running order. You know, I um, have a lot of experience in short film and having had films in festivals where they program a block of short films. And um, it's really an art because if you have a, like a, a really heavy drama, you know, in which someone maybe has cancer or something, and then you have a four-minute comedy. Yeah. <laughs> People are still crying halfway through your comedy. Yeah. And it's like, oh, no, this didn't work. <laughs> but at the same time, you don't want it to all these, you know, laughs or all be heavy. You've got to break up heavy with lighter. And so... Um, so it should be, um, it should be like a wave, you know, that is, that is sweet and heavy and then light and sort of like comic relief and then back heavy again, but never where it's like jarring, where it like it really takes you sort of, sort of an emotional journey from the night. And it feels like a complete production, even though they're these separate stories and they should all feel like, oh, wow, they all kind of had in a weird way, somewhat of a th similar theme in which people made some sort of connection that was not obvious going into their, their day. That's Ted James. He's the lead curator and producer of the Artistic Homes annual Cut to the Chase one-act play festival. It starts Thursday, January 26th and continues through Sunday, the 29th, at the Den Theater in the Wicker Park neighborhood. You can find ticket info at thedentheater.com. The 95th Academy Awards ceremony won't take place until March 12th, but the nominations will be revealed this Tuesday morning. It's usually fun to see what the Academy is recognizing, though there likely won't be many surprises. It appears as if Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Banshees of Inner Sharon, and The Fablemans are the favorites to come away with the most nominations. And if we assume those three each get Best Picture nominations, that leaves seven other potential slots, though the Academy doesn't have to nominate ten. Many believe box office hits Top Gun Maverick, Avatar The Way of Water, and Elvis will be rewarded with noms. That would leave four spots. 
Tar, the whale, and women talking are among the others in consideration. All quiet on the western front, she said, and the indie triangle of sadness are dark horses to sneak into the category. All the nominations will be unveiled live from the Academy's Samuel Goldwyn Theater on Tuesday morning at 7.30 a.m. Central Time. If you want to watch, tune into ABC Channel 7 locally, or you can stream the event on Oscars.com. The Academy Awards ceremony will take place on March 12th. It'll be on ABC again. Comedian Jimmy Kimmel is back to host the awards for a third time. You're tuned into WDCB. This is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Over a billion people globally are welcoming the Year of the Rabbit today as the Lunar New Year celebration gets underway. The Lunar New Year, sometimes called Chinese New Year because it follows a calendar that was developed in China, is celebrated in countries all over the world. While the calendar is sometimes just called lunar, it adds an extra month every few years to stay in sync with the solar cycle, so it's technically lunar and solar. This means that the date of the Lunar New Year in the Gregorian calendar changes from year to year, but always falls in January or February. The holiday has become more visible and accessible in the U.S. in recent years. This year, there will be several ways to celebrate in the Chicago area. The Field Museum, Navy Pier, and the Chicago Cultural Center are just a few of the organizations presenting Chinese New Year programming. The Chinese Fine Arts Society is helping with some of that programming and has been supporting Chinese culture in the Chicago area for almost 40 years. It's really gratifying to see how so many people are now getting exposure to China's 5,000-year-old cultural history through all these different angles. And that's the biggest change that I have seen. Even in the last 10 years, it's really grown quite a lot, but certainly from our roots to now, it's a whole different place than where it was. This is Julie Tiao Ma, the president of the Chinese Fine Arts Society. I recently checked in with her to talk about the organization's distinguished history and to preview some of the Chinese New Year events taking place over the next two weeks. The origins of the Chinese Fine Arts Society go back to the mid-80s. You have a personal connection to the organization? Your mom started it? Yes. The organization was founded in 1984 by my late mom, Barbara Tiao. And she was a woman who was uh, really passionate about sharing our cultural history with people around her. Uh, She uh, actually came over uh, originally from uh, China in the 1950s on a an, a scholarship to Skidmore College where her role or the um, the situations of her scholarship was that she'd be a cultural ambassador to her classmates in uh, at Skidmore and uh, tell them a little bit about Chinese food and Chinese music. And, and so she actually spent her weekends traveling to uh, her classmates, to the homes of her classmates uh, at the school uh, to to carry out that mission, and I think it just informed her whole life, and she's always been incredibly articulate and passionate about sharing all of the beautiful aspects of uh, our music and our our culture, and so that's very much embodied in the way that we approach events and and what we try to do, uh, especially around Chinese New Year, which is such a great opportunity to to share uh, our, our culture with more people. 
and then I would assume eventually you became involved with the organization. I'm curious about some of the, the changes you've seen since you've been involved. It, it feels like us as a society are more aware of uh, the Lunar New Year and, and Chinese culture. It wasn't always like that, though. Yes, I think that it's certainly been just a, a really interesting few decades uh, of change. Uh, you know, I think when my mom started the organization, there, there were a lot of people who knew almost nothing about Chinese culture. And now, I, you know, I was just reading an article today about, uh, you know, it's offensive to call it Lunar New Year or Chinese New Year. And just the fact that there's that level of, of understanding that there's even a New Year that isn't the Gregorian calendar New Year is really encouraging to me. It just it shows this broad interest in cultures other than our own, and uh, I, uh, I find that just really encouraging. <laughs> Yeah, and then just like a, a side note, you know, when I was growing up, one of my classmates, his parents were from China, so you know, they came in and, and talked to us, and so I, I learned about Lunar New Year, Chinese New Year, uh, you know, for that one class session uh, back when I was in, in third grade, but other than that, it wasn't talked about a lot, and the other day I was in Target, and they had this whole, like, Lunar New Year section where they had all this, like, stuff for people to decorate their homes. That definitely wouldn't have been a, a reality, like, 20 years ago. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's really fun to see how people take it on and, and what um, you know what decor they come up with and, and how widely it's, it's it's everywhere. It's in gas stations. It's really it's really um, uh, really positive. And it just I think it's you know so much has changed over the last few decades with you know the advent of the internet and people being so much more globally connected. I think there is just this broader awareness that there are other cultures and that are all still, you know, um, aggregated and assimilated uh, here in America. A number of Chicago institutions are doing uh, special events and programming. So then do they reach out to the Chinese Fine Arts Society for help in, in programming? So we've been very lucky for the last uh, five years, I think, now that we've been a uh, partner with Choose Chicago, which is uh, Chicago's tourism arm, and just a wonderful partner for us. And uh, so every year they look to us to help with creating opportunities for people to celebrate uh, the Chinese New Year in, in different venues. And we're very lucky that that we've had great partners like the Art Institute, maybe uh, Pier. Uh, the Field Museum this year, as well as the Chicago Cultural Center, that are happy to ha give us opportunities to showcase uh, many of the performing arts and the artisans here in Chicago that uh, have been carrying those traditions forward. And so uh, we actually started our season a little bit early yesterday with a concert at the Old Town School of Music, which was really fun, you know, again, celebrates Chinese music. But on the first day of Chinese New Year, there's always events going on throughout the city. Uh, this year, our kickoff event is at the Field Museum, where we're basically uh, creating a teaser event to uh, give just a snippet of, uh, Chinese, uh, of Chinese dance and Chinese music, as well as, of course, having lions, a lion dance performance, which is very important on the first day of Chinese New Year. Uh, because you always want to make a lot of noise to scare away any bad luck that might be lurking around so that you can start the year fresh with only good luck around you. And there are two Chinese New Year parades in Chicago, one on the north side and one 
on the south side uh, near Chinatown. Is the Chinese Fine Arts Society involved with either of those? So those actually, we're, we're, um, those are so well organized by the neighborhoods that, uh, where, they, where they take place. We're spectators like everybody else that goes through that this year. And I have been to the cultural center in past years when they do whatever their celebration, I think it's the Lantern Festival celebration, they call it. And so this year it's taking place on the 5th, so towards the, the end of the holiday. Is something that takes place on the 15th day of the Chinese New Year period. So Chinese New Year is a two-week celebration in China, and I like to think of it as uh, Thanksgiving, New Year's, and all of the winter holidays rolled into one two-week period in China. And it's a time when people, uh, you know, tend to go home, visit their families, take time off, and it's a time of rejuvenation. Um, and so, as I said earlier, um, the first day of Chinese New Year, you do you you have a celebration where you have drums and lion dances and you make a lot of noise to scare away any evil spirits that might be lurking around. And actually, you do time to prepare for that day leading up to Chinese New Year where you clean your house, you pay your bills, you collect on debts, you do everything you can to kind of start the year with a clean slate and you then on the first day you make, you, you know, you make a lot of noise. People also set off a lot of firecrackers. Um, where it's legal to do so. Um, but then uh, for the two-week Chinese New Year, New Year period, there are things that you do every day. You go visit ancestral graves. You go visit your family. Um, but then on the very last day of Chinese New Year, you hang lanterns in your windows to, again, scare away any bad luck that might have decided to come back and try and head in your direction. And um, so this year we're doing a lantern festival at the Chicago Cultural Center where we're basically transforming it into a lantern Chinese marketplace and we'll be featuring some of Chicago's most um, illustrious um, musicians, dancers, martial artists, and of course uh, we will have a live dance performance there as well. So that is going to be our, our big finale, it's kind of like a big party celebrating the end of Chinese New Year. The Lantern Festival, if you Google it, is the event that happens on the last day of Chinese New Year. And in Chinese, it's called Rian Xiaojia, which is, which is the last day. Ma says she's excited about the return of in-person events in 2023 after a couple years off because of the pandemic. Well, there's several things going on this year. You know, I think with COVID, uh, a lot of things that we've done in the past that were really big and outdoors and, um, you know, attracted big crowds. Are, are things that we're coming back to. And so we're excited to be able to start building up some of the our pre-COVID activity again. And this Lantern Festival event is certainly one of them. And uh, so, yes, I, I do think it's kind of a time of rebuilding. You know, I think a lot of uh, um, activities are really coming back to life this year. This, I, I've talked to quite a few people that have said to me that this year kind of feels like we're almost back to normal. And that's really, that's really uh, gratifying. For sure. And people can uh, find more information at uh, ChineseFineArts.org. You know, after I'm sure after the two-week holiday, you maybe take some time to to regroup, but then does uh, your organization do stuff throughout the year? Yes. Uh, we So there's several uh, things that we try to do. We uh, try to commemorate. or So one of them, of course, is Asian Heritage Month, uh, which is in May. 
uh, there's a holiday called uh, the Moon Festival, which is probably the second most popular holiday in uh, Asia after the Chinese New Year Festival, and that happens in the fall, and we uh, tend to do events around that time of year as well. We also have a Chinese music uh, performance competition called the Music Festival in, in honor of Confucius that we do every year, either in the spring or the fall, and it's an opportunity for children to learn uh, Chinese music that's been translated or been um, transcribed for uh, Western instruments, and uh, and then they have an opportunity to um, perform for a panel of judges, and then the performers that best capture the the, the music uh, get to play in a, a, a winner's recital, uh, usually in a, a fairly high profile venue like the Cultural Center or the Chicago Cultural Center or in one of the many beautiful concert halls throughout the city. So that's just a smattering of the things that we do. We do tend to stay pretty busy throughout the year. Yeah, of course. And again, uh, ChineseFineArts.org is the website. Julie, I really appreciate you taking time to, to talk with me. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. That's Julie Tiao Ma. She's the president of the Chinese Fine Arts Society. The organization's website is ChineseFineArts.org. And if you're looking for an even more comprehensive list of Chinese New Year's events taking place, you can check out ChuChicago.com. They have a pretty big list of all the things happening over the next two weeks. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture by visiting the program's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.